Hi, welcome to Agora Community Radio, the podcast for artists in the animation industry who want to listen and learn on the go. This episode is from our A Conversation With series, where we invite pros from all walks of our industry to have a chat with us about their background and experiences, and then we finish it off with a little Q&A from the audience. You can always head on over to our website, agora.community, to watch the full video, or if you just want to listen to what we think are the most interesting bits and pieces of these conversations, you can listen to the Agora Bytes clips on this channel. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the conversation uh, with myself and David Hubert. Once again, we have an awesome guest who I haven't seen in quite a long time, um, actually. I never had a chance to work with this person, but um, um, but Christine has. And some of you know who Christine is. Christine's my significant other. Um, she speaks very, very high praises of this particular man. Um, and, um, you know, we've had a couple interactions, but never, never had the pleasure of working together. Um, but um, he's been everywhere, quite literally. Um, I think quite, quite, almost quite literally he's worked at like, he's worked at Weta, he's worked at Ubisoft, which is where we almost kind of cross paths. Um, and now he finds himself over steamroller and he's got a kind of a, we have a kind of a special fresh off the hot, hot off the press kind of announcement today we could talk about, um, while he's on the stream. But before we do that, I'm going to bring in David and, uh, kind of do our thing. David. Hey Brent. So the those stream has been rebranded as D conversation. I, I, like, I don't know. I just, like it. it was it was a natural evolution. It's like welcome to the conversation. You know? You just did it. Thanks. D conversation twenty twenty. Yeah, that's right. There's only one conversation and this is it. You're you're here now <laughs> listening to it. So if you're somewhere else, then you're in the wrong one. But it's all good. We're at the we're at the right one. That's all that matters. Yep. Sure are. Yeah, that'll be a fun, a fun one uh, today. Actually, I knew same for, for me. I kind of knew Haran from the uh, iAnimate uh, days. Ah, uh, yes. We had him as, as one of the our very early instructors um, at a time that you know obviously as someone that very high caliber of animation, but both in VFX and mm. game studios uh, as well. So made him a very interesting uh, candidate to 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 have. Yeah. But I mean, I even if with the few interaction that I had with uh, uh, Haran, I mean, his uh, energy was always uh, infectious. So mm. I was definitely so. I think not. A couple of months ago, when we had the uh, the discussion with uh, Jalil uh, Sadol from Steamroller, right away after I started to prepare, like, hey, can we have Aaron eventually uh, as well? <laughs> and you know, that's what's planned a few uh, yeah. weeks. Yeah, those seeds were planted long ago. Yeah, we're cultivating now, basically. Yeah. So, and here we are. So, looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I find it's interesting, Aaron. Like, that's I think the thing that is kind of the craziest about Aaron is just how many different industries he spent quite a bit of time in and at a very high level. So. Uh, yeah, this will be a very well-rounded conversation, that's for sure. Let's bring him in and uh, start this conversation. Start the conversation, not that conversation. <laughs> Aaron, how are you? Welcome to the show, bud. Hello, everybody. Awesome hello, hello. to be here. Thank you so much. It's nice to have you. Thank I, you. I would say you have one of the most chill, laid-back yeah, settings totally. that we had in this conversation. Yeah, you yeah. yeah. Listen, I'm in love with this couch. And the thing is, is uh, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm 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 normally in Vancouver, but uh, mm. I've actually spent the past month here in the studio at, at Steamroller. So oh, nice. take, taking advantage of all the furniture, just lying out. Good idea. Good idea. <laughs> if it's there, you should use it. You should be exactly. on it in some way. Yeah. <laughs> so Aaron, something that we very rapidly chatted uh, uh, before our conversation was your early start as we're all from, well, actually, Brett, technically you're from uh, Toronto, but you almost started your career in a, a, in Montreal, which is a, a, another thing that Aaron and I, so kind mm. of started in Toronto, then moved to to, uh, to Montreal. And uh, Aaron, so you started at 
uh, Meteor Studio, mm. uh, what? The infamous Meteor Studio. Years. Yes, the infamous Me Meteor Studio. So, and it, it, go ahead. I was going to say, people are still calling it the infamous Meteor oh, Studio. Oh, yeah, for sure. They still <laughs> that, that has, stories. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I remember, I remember, um, I remember when the lights were going out and they were shutting oh, yeah. the doors. They mm. wouldn't let anybody have their demo reels. Oh yeah. Um, and I'm like, this company's closing. We're not oh, yeah. going to see our oh, work yeah. like ever not again. A good sign. So I was, I was one of the last guys to walk out the building. I saw the my name on the CD label in a box, and I just went, see ya, Yoink. <laughs> and oh, walked wow. right out the door. Yep. Unapologetically. Yeah, there was no way. Unapologetically. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and that was the second time that you were at Meteor, right? Correct. So okay. I had uh, Meteor oh. was my first job. That was for for okay. TV dinosaur stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, so, I remember that show. So speaking of dinosaurs, uh, not to age ourselves, but there's some in our <laughs> audience that might not have even been born in, in 2001. Oh, yeah. when, when that, so so yeah. what do you remember Yikes. from those very early early days of? Uh, what do uh, I remember? CG? I rem I remember. What do I remember? So. I remember being extremely intimidated by the people that I was working with because my very first job, actually a whole bunch of animators from Disney's Dinosaur um, mm. had come over from California to work on the brand new shows that this new startup Meteor Studios was going to was going to be doing. Um, so I was extremely intimidated from day one. My very first dailies, uh, my first animation actually got laughs. Uh, in, uh, among, <laughs> that's and that's bad, right? That's not a good sign. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, so, man. of course, I was I was mortified. Uh, I was told mm. after that the animation was good. It was just more for a Disney movie and not for a realistic documentary, mm. which is what we were making. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I had uh, I had great memories of animating dinosaurs. This was in the day where, you know, rigs were there was basically no ik spine this was all fk spine. oh yeah everything had to be counter animated if you had to move the hips you had to re-counter animate everything up to the head it was um it was probably um i mean i was super excited all the time my energy was through the roof constantly uh, mm. and i was constantly jazzed about the fact that i was making things move it was yeah, just yeah. like look at that That's right. um but yeah <laughs> Uh, just to uh, just to clarify, I I feel like I remember the name of this series was Walking with Dinosaurs. No, so Walking with Dinosaurs oh. was BBC. So that was what oh. we were built at media to compete with because Walking uh, with Dinosaurs yeah. made a huge splash, right? So it was actually when dinosaurs roamed America. Wait, wait. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Someone wants to wave really quick. <laughs> oh, look at her! A live, a live appearance right there. It's happening. Amazing. Hi, Christine. Yeah. Okay. And and it's good news. Good news. Uh, my daughter does not have a broken leg, so everything's fine. Oh, um, perfect. All right, good. Stream can can, can continue. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, Sorry. no, it was it was when dinosaurs roamed America. Um, oh, so that's it was right. Like, okay. a, yeah, it was just a doco to. But it was meant to. That's right. It was literally meant to be the competitor in a way, right? To yeah, that market. It was full li live action yeah. shot with, you know, right. comp and integration. Because yeah. coming off the heel of Disney's dinosaur, obviously dinosaurs was a hot topic and Hollywood was just trying to produce dinosaur content and yeah. Meteor and, was the and, Canadian and, answer to that question. It was, I believe, maybe someone in the audience will correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Frame Store that did Walking with Dinosaurs uh, for I BBC. Think you might be right. Um, okay. And that was off the charts amazing. Like it mm. was at, for the time, it was really, mm. really good. Um, mm. And then this company came along, Meteor, and it was like 30 seconds of dinosaur animation a week. It was the budgets weren't <laughs> the same at all. There was no way to compete. Yeah, it was it was rough. I mean, if you go back and look at that stuff now, it's pretty it's pretty rough. Mm. Yeah. 
Uh, and just to come back to the, the story that we rapidly uh, touch on. So Meteor is, and the way that it unfortunately uh, ended after what, maybe six, seven years of uh, existence, like it was a very publicly, uh, you know, uh, first of all, we're closing the studio, but there's a lot of people that were not paid, not paid. for Acer. And there's been a, a big uh, lawsuits of employees put together to sue. And I know that some yeah. of them got paid. I don't know. So what, what it, it, can you do a, a better, a better job at explaining from, <laughs> from being there, what, what, what happened? Because it's I, one of the big stories that oh, we, yeah. even 15 it's, years after we, we still remember. Yeah, is that it's right? Part of the yeah. industry lore here in Montreal. Basically everybody talks about it still. I, I don't, I uh, like to be perfectly honest, I moved on with my life pretty quick after <laughs> mm -hmm. that. So in terms of the financials of why that company failed or who pulled the plug, it was an American owned company. If I remember correctly, it was owned by, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. It was like St. Pierre or something like that, who was based out of, uh, out of LA. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was a discovery channel and then his company kind of co-ownership. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of why the company failed financially and how all of that happened, I have no idea. I was still mm -hmm. pretty young in, in my career. Um, yeah. But uh, there were a lot of people that didn't get paid. There was yeah. a lot of court battles that went on for years. I yeah. do know that some people got their money and some people didn't. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of why it went under, I don't yeah. really know. Yeah. But you, from the inside, I mean, just for your uh, mm -hmm. own uh, experience, is that something that you were seeing come uh, ahead of time or was no, 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 it came out of nowhere. It came mm -hmm. out of nowhere. It was literally like very, very fast. And also you have to remember that I hadn't been with Meteor for that seven. I went off and did other things and then only came back to Meteor because they had offered me work on one particular project, which was... Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, with Brendan Fraser, Journey to the Center of oh, the Earth, yeah. the first one, um, before I think The Rock did the second one, mm. uh, and that was an opportunity to soup uh, to supervise creature work and and for 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 a film, you know. So that was kind of what my sort of mental and and you know creative investment was in going back to Meteor mm. was really to do that show, mm. yeah. Uh, in between both, uh, I think that's when you, you went to Ubisoft and then EA, right? So it was your little venture in uh, video game de development. And I right. kind of recall one very entertaining discussion that we had about your some of your frustration as an artist with gameplay animation of being limited with so much different technical uh, aspect uh, uh, of it is that do I recall this part no this part you recall correctly? correctly yeah I think you know I've, I've, I've talked a lot about this in the past it's like I feel like it was really hard to go from film work mm. and TV work to games yeah. um, because you, you know they're very different pipelines they're very different creative workflows because obviously in video games you have you know uh, creative directors that you know their, their fundamental job is is it fun to play uh, mm. and sometimes that can be at the expense of does the animation look amazing? Mm. Um, you know, it, sometimes you know you'll you'll speed stuff up in the engine or you'll blend it in a way that you know is required for playability. But from my point of view as an animator who just wanted to animate, uh, I'm focused on what it looks like on the final you know product mm. you know up on a big screen and, and rendered. And I think for games it was very hard for me to go in mm. that direction than maybe the other way. I could see how obviously talking with a lot of game animators, they love the day-to-day -day process of the problem solving and yeah. the puzzles of level design and how are we going to do this? I just wanted to 
animate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted to do really cool uh, uh, performances. So I found that there was a bit of a conflict there for me that that resulted in some frustrations uh, where mm-hmm. I love the people I was working with. I thought Ubisoft was great, um, but uh, the uh, the process wasn't wasn't for me mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You're not alone. A lot of people try to make that transition. They just can't. It's much difficult, much more difficult going the way you said, because it's, it's, it just, you know, you can always, because when you, from the other, other perspective of going from games to TV or, or film, they may struggle with the quality. Like they might have a hard time, like bringing their quality bar up, but it, suddenly it feels like, whoa, we have more time and there's no game designer telling me you have to like make it faster. It's like, yeah. it, it can feel a lot more, um, liberating than the other way around, you know, and a lot of it has to do with, I feel like it's not just the, um, it's not just the game industry. It's also the, some, some team cultures. Like you might've found yourself at a different company, like say Naughty Dog, where they do put the quality of the, the movement a little bit higher up in the sort of the, 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 the importance level. And you yes. might've had a much better experience, but I think you were working on Prince of Persia, right? No, and that's the other thing. Actually, oh. I wasn't on Prince of Persia, which, which just to be clear, like if I had been on a very animation-centric type of game- Yeah, it might've like went a bit better. Creature work, it might've been a different thing, but I Maybe. was on Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Vegas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which no. was, you know, that's a first-person shooter. Yeah. Um, the great thing about it was, like, I got a lot out of the experience. Like, sure. one, I got a lot of leadership experience out of that uh, very early in my career. Still, I was able to explore that. But also, I, I got opened up to the whole world of, you know, directing actors on mocap stages mm. and also suiting up myself and doing door <laughs> entries and stuff like that. <laughs> so from that perspective, it was all really exciting. It mm. was just the, the day-to-day workflow wasn't quite my vibe. I was still very very much attached to the idea of the craft of animation. Um, And that's really where I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. And you, did you ever work in cinematic where it was all gameplay animation? It was, it was the the cinematics were done in engine. Um, So it was basically just plug and play of, you know, mocap sequences and stuff like that. Uh, And then a lot of in-game stuff. Um, but the, my, the team that I was working with was amazing. You know, I had yeah. a great time sort of building relationships with them. I'm still in touch with a number of them now after mm. all this time. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, and now obviously I'm running a studio that, you know, with, with my partner Jalil that, you know, has a heavy, heavy uh, investment in gameplay animation and working with our clients on game design and, and all of yeah. those things. And, and that's amazing. I love looking at it from this perspective. <laughs> um, but, but as an animator, it, it, it wasn't really my bag. Yeah. Um, and then I'm curious, what, what brought you to uh, to Weta a couple of years? After? So, so when 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 Meteor went under, um, when they collapsed, basically I had my Ubisoft and EA experience, which I knew I, I didn't want to go back to games. And then at that time, the only studio I knew that was doing you know film work was Meteor. And then now that collapsed. So I looked at my wife and I was like, I, I think we got to go. I think it's time it's time to leave Montreal and get out of here. Now, I used to work at a company called Tippett uh, Studio in mm. San Francisco, yeah, uh, in Ber- Berkeley, Berkeley, California. Yeah. And that was uh, my first sort of, you know, big film film job where I got to work on some really high profile films there. And I made relationships there. Um, so I built some friendships there. And those people on their mm-hmm. own sort of, you know, trajectory had moved to New Zealand to work on, you know, the Lord of the Rings films and and uh, and some other uh, Kong uh, was was one that they they were working on, so I gave them a call and uh, without even sending a reel, I didn't have to send any work. They were oh, just nice. like, 
why don't you come on down? We're, we're working on this thing with the blue, blue aliens. Um, and, uh, so that's it. I had a contract in hand. We sold our house in Montreal and, and went down there and it was supposed to be a year and a half on, uh, on avatar, uh, which I did, uh, as a senior animator. And then, uh, we ended up staying, uh, eight years. Uh, and my son basically grew up there and I worked hmm. on, you know, about 14 films while I was there as a soup. Wow. Hmm. I'm curious, what did you work on over a tippet? Like um, Hellboy? Uh, yeah, so I was on uh, my first project when I got there was uh, Matrix Revolutions. Oh, wow. Um, then that was the third Matrix. We did I didn't even know Tippett worked the... on that. That's yeah, yeah, we did. Um, if you remember the film, I don't know if you, you would, but uh, there's a huge tunnel uh, chase sequence with yep. hundreds with of the sentinels. sentinels. Yeah. yeah, so I was uh, working uh, primarily on Sentinel stuff. Okay. And then after that, I went on to Hellboy. Uh, that was the highlight uh, uh, at the time. I was working sure. with a really talented uh, animation supervisor who I then reconnected with at Weta named nice. Todd Labonte. Uh, and uh, Todd was my soup on Hellboy. And that was uh, probably one of the best film experiences I had. Um, so awesome. Yeah, it's great. I got to work on, you know, a lot of Abe Sapien uh, swimming stuff and, and Samael the demon and that, that uh, character's so awesome. Awesome stuff. And then after that, it was uh, Constantine. Uh, uh, you uh, got to work on Constantine. <gasps> yeah, I worked on the uh, I worked on the I don't remember what they were called. They were the half-headed blind zombie yeah, on the, the Hell Highway. In the Hellscape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. man. You know, yeah, that's you know funny. what? You know what bummed me out about that? You know what bummed me out about that? That was the first time. I'd only heard stories about this, but it actually happened to me. That was the first time where my shots got sped up in the movie. No, really? Um, Yep. The whole sequence was sped up. It wasn't just my shots. It was the whole thing. They thought, I guess Mm. it was too slow. He was being Mm. chased too slowly. Um, And so my shots got sped up. And I, 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 you know, when you're working in animation, like I'm sure this is with any artistic craft, you know everything about your shot. I mean, it, it is literally oh, like yeah. looking into it's the like your matrix child. of the, yeah, exactly. And you know everything about it. And when I saw it in the theater, uh, <laughs> wait a minute, I, I was like, what, what just yeah. happened? It went, it went by like that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, that I was pretty bummed about that. It's like the only thing worse than, than your shot getting cut is it stays in, but they butcher it. They, yeah. they speed it up. You yeah. bastards. You, you know something uh, throughout my whole career, I have been extremely lucky with not having my shot. Oh, cut. wow. That's crazy. Maybe one or two here or there, that but never, lucky. never anything that I was super attached to, you know? So, that's um, <laughs> so fun fact, uh, I think I said this on stream a long time ago, but Keanu Reeves, Yep. Um, apparently if he had any movie that he could green light, if it was like the one movie he would want to bring a sequel to out of all the movies he ever worked on Constantine, that's the one out of all of them. That's his favorite. I find that it really was, interesting. It was fun, man. It was, it was, it was a great project to work on. I had a blast on it. Uh, I ended up leaving. That was, um, one of those experiences where I left a shot in the middle, uh, which I don't Ooh. think I've ever done before or since, uh, mm. but I had no choice. Uh, we were not happy. Uh, my mm. wife and I had just had our one and only son, uh, Ezra, uh, and we were living in California and not really jiving with the experience, mm. plus being new parents without friends mm. and family to give us a support network. Plus yeah. I was working, you know, Rough. 60 plus hours a week or 70 hours a week. Sure. So, uh, uh, we we were like, no, we got to go. We so mm. after a little over a year at Tibbet on those three films, uh, we upped and left. And I left my shot in the middle. It's a shot where uh, they're exercising the demon in Constantine in the mirror. He manages oh, to yeah. get the demon into the mirror, and That's the one mirror of the first goes shots. out. Everyone sequences, yeah, yeah, one of the first. And the mirror goes out the window. And there's a shot where I did all, all of them going out the window, mm-hmm. and as the mirror is falling, the demon is trying to claw out. Yeah, yeah, trying to claw out, and. Um, 
the last shot of that sequence is the mirror smashes on the top of the car. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I couldn't do the shot. Uh, I was struggling with mm. this shot so bad because what happens is you have to convey the idea that the demon is three-dimensional within mm -hmm. the mirror, right? Mm -hmm. So even though the mirror is a flat surface, he's fully three-dimensional inside of it. But then when it hits the top of the hood of the car, they wanted this sense that the demon kind of goes right goes into a two-dimensional mm -hmm. sort of like just mm -hmm. like like yeah. this thing and i struggled so much with the changing in the visual perception mm -hmm. of space from it falling away to it getting this 2d splat mm -hmm. and i remember always being bummed because it ended up going to my supervisor who's an old friend of mine todd and uh, he ended up finishing it and uh i was out the door not mm -hmm. really tackling the, the mm -hmm. puzzle of this shot and it always stuck with me for years mm -hmm. after you bring that yeah. to your grave Exactly. <clears throat> that 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 made me think of, of something that we have. I know there's some studio that are um, taking shots. An animator is going to block it. Oh, we have to give this shot to an uh, other animator, which is which is a little bit what uh, happened in this story, but it was a little bit more mm. out of their uh, out of your control. What do you think? Uh, because we talked about Meteor, and for me personally, Meteor is the only place that. A manager was like, oh, actually, you have too much shot. We're going. And I was like, no, I'm going to finish my shot. Thank you very much. It's a mess. I don't want anyone else to, to be bothered with. Uh, what are your, your thoughts on uh, having shots sharing in different hands? Well, uh, I've worked with supervisors. I worked with one supervisor, and I was actually the animation director on that project. So it was an extremely large team. There were about 90 animators worldwide on that project. And I was working with one supervisor who actually told me that he purposefully, this is not production, this is the supervisor, right? He purposefully moves shots around his team as a way of... Uh, getting his animators to work faster, work harder, so that they don't lose their work. Um, mm. And that that uh, was a concept that uh, really repelled me. Um, I, I fundamentally do not uh, believe in that. I think in my entire career, I've maybe taken two shots away from two animators. I had one animator who struggled with a shot for seven months. And at that point, it was time for it to go, um, you know, <laughs> wow. like, uh, and then uh, there may be some other very, you know, specific reasons for why I would do that. But in general, uh, if you get the casting wrong as a supervisor, it's usually because it's a relationship you don't know. Uh, mm. It's usually because it's a new relationship with a new animator. You may have looked at their reel or seen some work they did on another project. And so you're making your best guess as to whether that is the right shot for them. Usually I've gotten it right. Very rarely will I get it wrong. But when I do, you then do everything you can to work that animator through the process. Um, mm. And under almost no circumstances would I ever take a shot away. I think that mm. that is extremely destructive, uh, not mm. only for the animator, but for a team potentially yeah. um but at the same time that i say that uh we are also in the business of making films for other people uh and there's a lot of money at play and there is a practical logistic uh, uh strategy that needs to be employed and mm. if you work in visual effects uh you will know anybody in the audience here who works in visual effects uh i don't need to tell you that it is a constant state of chaos um <laughs> it, it never stops uh and often that chaos comes from 
the client. Uh, it may be that they miss a turnover date. Uh, you know, usually a movie, uh, a major uh, uh, film will have, let's say, you know, five to eight turnovers. Uh, turnover being sequences of hundreds mm -hmm. of shots. And of course, they're working with their editors to That's design right. it and figure it out. And then they have to get it vetted. And there's this whole machine happening on their end, which inevitably screws us over in some way, yeah. shape or form. We get shots late. They come yeah. in the wrong order. Now that they came in the wrong order, the six shots you gave to this person, their schedule's now backwards. How are they going to do that? Then, of course, shots need to be shown in sequence, right? You never want to show a director, you know, uh, 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 you know, green screen, green screen, the shot they want, they need to approve. And then, of course, it's editorially mm -hmm. contingent on the next shot, but then you don't have that one done either. So there's so many moving parts that over the years, I've accepted the reality of that. However, I should also say that I also learned how to manipulate it myself. So mm. I would work with production as a supervisor or an animation director to manipulate that system to some degree so that I could move certain things forward in ways that made sense as chunks and move other things back in ways that made sense as chunks, as long as they were part of the same sort of turnover delivery contractually and they're in that same group of shots. You could you could work <clears throat> with production. I don't think you ever want production going going rogue. You know, you mm -hmm. need supervisors who are going to speak up and say, no, no, if, if we take that one away from John, then that's going to mess up his flow on the next two shots. So, you know, so I think that there's a certain degree of um, responsibility that soups and, and anim mm -hmm. directors have to, to do that right. Yeah, I have another feedback from many animators in VFX and mostly uh, animators that are maybe trying VFX for, for the first time. Maybe they're used to uh, animated feature uh, before that, that I'd like to have your uh, opinion on is the fact that um, by the nature of VFX, it's almost like sometime you have to, show, you want to make sure to don't, not go in the wrong direction. So you show your shot very early and sometimes it's too early. So it's being out of circle or sometime they want to make sure, no, we're going to show the director something that is, you know, advanced enough. So we will really see it. And then you go for a, a long time in, in the wrong direction. And that, that's something that we've discussed and often, director from VFX are coming from film compared, let's say, from a, a director from animated feature that are coming more from animation. So sometimes the blocking is something that they have a harder time to to uh, properly see. What is your... And th that provides a classic situation of your version 72 is pretty close to your third version, but you've just been iterating for, for forever. Uh, what are your thoughts in, in general about th this perception from many animators that VFX means that you're going to do endless versions of the same shot and eventually <laughs> you'll just run out of time so you'll move on to something else. Yeah. Um, wow. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I mean, oh, I could go on forever. Um, you know, I think that uh, I've had both experiences, right? Uh, if you work on a uh, James Cameron uh, film, uh, that entire movie has been pre-vised for five years before you mm -hmm. ever got your shot. Uh, so when you get your shot, uh, don't change anything. Just make it look good. Um, and if you can stick to that and kind of color between the lines of the previs, uh, you're going to be fine and you're going to get your shot approved pretty easily. Uh, however, I've also worked on uh, shots where uh, I've worked with a director, I, I'm not going to say names, um, where, uh, you know, I've had 85 different ways in which a character could fall down. Uh, 
Oh um, and then, of course, uh, by the time they approve it, it does, in fact, look like version three. Uh, and, of course, <laughs> the approval note is, yeah, OK, fine. <laughs> uh, and, you know, oh, you just want to, like, kill yourself. Uh, so my, my point is, is that um, I think that visual <clears throat> effects or directors of visual effects movies more often come from non-visual effects and non-animation yeah. related backgrounds. And so for that reason, um, it can be more difficult to walk them through the process. But like I worked with, um, uh, you know, Joss Whedon uh, uh, on the first Avengers film, and he knew exactly what he was doing, probably because he, you know, had Buffy and, 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 and you know, Firefly yeah. and all that stuff. Natural extension to what he's already been making for years. Exactly. And so you could uh, get notes from him. Uh, that's another thing, right? Which is uh, often in animated feature work, you're getting notes uh, either from the director or from, uh, you know, the director is in the building, you know, they're in the same vicinity as you. Uh, in visual effects, you're often getting notes from uh, <laughs> possibly a visual effects supervisor, maybe another animation director on the studio side who then shows to them, who then shows to them, yeah. who then shows to them. And so it can be very difficult in that respect. But um, um, I guess my point is, is that, uh, you know, you, we often tell students, right, that the cardinal rule is don't get too attached. Um, and that is um, the reality, both for animated feature work and for visual effects work, because ultimately it's not yours and someone else is paying for it. Uh, do I wish that the pain of doing 75 versions would, would not exist for people? Yes, of course. But at the same time, um, you know, you're you're working through someone else's mindset, and you, you do develop a skill set around that. So, like, you know, at Weta, I could never understand why everybody's blocking looked like polished animation. Uh, so, blocking would go out, and it would be for some other companies like finished. Um, and what I started to discover was the reason for that was because it didn't matter what notes the director gave. If it was fundamentally different than the blocking, the animators there were so talented that they would they would hammer it into shape. They would figure it out. They would move it and shift it, bake it out on fives, do whatever they needed to do, and they could turn that around real quick. So it does generate a certain skill set to be able to pivot, shift, and adjust uh, rather than when you have infinite amounts of time and, and the direction is super clear. So I don't know. There's pros and cons to it. Um, yeah, I worked, yeah. I worked on a shot on Tintin for two and a half years. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, on, on Avatar, we had artists working on shots for a year and a half, uh, plus, you know, you know, it's bad when you're, when you're celebrating the birthday of a shot, that's like probably at that point, um, <laughs> where things get a little yeah. bit awkward. Yeah. I think I had a, candle. I, I had a shot uh, in Tintin where um, Snowy uh, jumps up on a table and there's a fight between Haddock and Tintin and mm. Snowy is like on the table. And uh, I think the shot got approved in animation at version 278. Oh. Uh, yeah, and that was two and a half years of working on that shot. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you start to question, like, am I really bad at my job? But then you realize, no, uh, it's the chaos. It's just yeah. the chaos of it. Yeah. So something that uh, you mentioned, Aaron, that we're uh, often talking as well is this this duality that on one side you need to be, you know, passionate and motivated and inspired enough by, by your shot to put all the time and energy to, that, that goes in, into it. But at the same time, as you mentioned, it's not yours and you don't want to be emotionally destroyed when it's being cut or changed or, or whatever. Uh, and sometimes there's uh, it's a balance uh, that, that needs to, to be found and, and some are, are struggling. What would be your advice for one of the animator in your team that might be 
<laughs> destroy because it's version like 78 or is almost done. Oh, there's a new idea. Just redo it or it's cut from the movie or whatever might be affecting emotionally uh, uh, an animator. Uh, what would be my advice? Well, I think um, there's a reason why a lot of animators like to have uh, a lot of shots on their plate at one time, maybe three or four different shots. I think one thing that you can do is switch gears, start focusing your mind on the challenges of, a, of another shot. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, I think that it takes a certain amount of resilience in uh, visual effects animation. Uh, be, uh, one other thing about visual effects animation that requires resilience is the fact that a lot of it isn't based in reference. Um, when you're working in animated feature work, a lot of the performances are based in reference, which um, can create an anchor point for the shot. Uh, but pretty much every creature I've ever worked on is inspired by a hyena or you know, uh, the essence of an octopus. Uh, but the reality is there's nothing in those videos I can look at that's really going to drive my performance. I sort of just have to pull concepts from it. Um, so, you know, you learn to be really resilient in visual effects because you almost never have all of the answers. Uh, in terms of how you deal with it, um, I think that, uh, you know, I think that it's tough, man, because I, I would say work on other things uh, if you can. Um, I would probably say make sure you're working in an environment where you have really strong relationships with people. Um, it is a collaborative uh, uh, field, and that can give people a lot of sustenance. Uh, it gave me a lot of sustenance, whether it's you know whiskey o'clock every night of the week at the end of the day or uh, whatever it may be. But being able to you know maybe vent a little bit, go to the gym, work out, get your 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 stress out. I think the idea is is that you need to come back the next day with a clean slate. Mm. That's mm -hmm. the key. And sometimes you just have to walk away. Uh, you know, I had um, I've had animators cry on me. Um, uh, uh, I've had um, animators just walk out the door because they just can't they can't take it. Of course, they come back. But, you know, you come back the next day with a clean slate and ready to go again. Um, so there, there is a lot of fortitude that you need to build up, I think, in in visual effects, because it, it can be such a a crazy sort of workflow. Which is, of course, a, a very difficult thing, considering it's a very creative industry. And therefore, we bring a lot of ourself to our job. Right. I guess that's the hard thing for most artists is that they need to build some ways, like you said, a mechanism that allows them to detach. Like they have to, like, I think the key is you need to bring that A game and your personality to the, to, to your work, but you need to somehow leave it at work. It's almost like a dual, I'm watching, I'm watching Severance right now. I feel like we could take some tips from, uh, from I like Severance. Severance. Yeah. That's a, that's a great show. It's a really good show. Um, you know, what I was going to say about that is like, um, you know, I, I think that when you're working in any uh, creative field like animation, I think the direction needs to give the artist the opportunity to do the work. Mm. Uh, it, it, what I mean by that is, um, uh, if you if you if the if the direction infringes on the animator's uh, intuition towards the performance too much, then what you're doing is you're diluting the value of the relationship. The value of the relationship is you're the one doing the work. You've been cast to this shot because mm -hmm. you are the right actor for this role, so to speak. So 
the direction has to allow you to color within certain broadness of, of lines, if that makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's very dangerous to over manipulate performance. Mm. If it's not telling the story, it's not telling the story. That's bad. Um, but, you know, if you, if you micromanage notes, a lot of <laughs> supervisors will do that. There are many directors who will do that as well, maybe because they don't quite understand how the process works. Um, but when you do that too much, you're dishonoring the collaboration. Totally. Uh, and, and that is the key to uh, the relationship, which is you have to allow people to express themselves through their their performance and and you're almost just guiding them like i have talked about this many times in the past which is it's it's the batman and robin relationship which is the director the animation supervisor the animation director all those people who are giving approvals they're robin they are not batman they are they are the less significant to some degree i say this with hesitation but my point is is that you know the superhero is the animator that's doing the the actual on the ground work and what you're doing is you're just you're just kind of steering watch out for that falling yeah. boulder batman you know yeah you're shepherding and i think that it's very i've worked with a lot of supervisors that are way too hands-on mm. um and i think if it feels right you go with it you don't always have to over critique something you know it's interesting and i i, I can ask you this because i know you've done both and i know david he probably already is anticipating what i'm about to say but you've worked with actors on a motion capture floor and there's a very very interesting correlation between what you just said and like how you like with how you should work with act uh, animators and how you're supposed to work with um actors because if you micromanage the actor the same thing happens they shut off and they no longer bring their sort of their creativity to the to the to the to the you know to the floor they're just going to be like okay you know what just tell me what you want me to do and that at that yeah. point you've lost a strong collaborator and you've just got someone who's going to just paint by a number and that's they're just going to phone it in basically that that, that 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 couldn't be more right and i think yeah. that when that happens uh you you better recognize it because yeah. um i guarantee you that the the quality of work and and also most likely the consistency totally. of the character performance across the edit is going to suffer um yeah it's a retention problem too that animator may eventually leave because if, if you're like that all the time they don't get to flex those creative muscles and they're going to become disinterested and no, they no longer like to work there and now you've got an even bigger problem on your hands basically yeah. no question yeah. and i would say I would probably argue that, uh, you know, I get asked a lot, like, what do you determine is the key uh, uh, aspect of uh, what do you think is the most important metric for mm. determining the success of a studio? Uh, mm. This is what I get asked a, a, a lot, especially now in my current role. Yeah, I would um, say it's kind of the top of the list for a CEO, probably. That's right. And for me, uh, it's retention. It has nothing to do with profitability. It has nothing to do with, you know, numbers like that. It's it's all about retention, which is mm. if I can look at the studio and I can see that fewer people are leaving every mm. year or whatever it may be, obviously people are always going to go. For uh, all kinds of reasons. For all kinds of reasons. Um, but if your retention numbers are high, um, it usually means that your artists are fulfilled by the work and they're happy by how they're being treated within mm. the studio environment they feel like they have collaborative fulfilling relationships relationships ultimately being the key if you can't build relationships in the studio and you're not being actively empowered to mm. do so then your studio is going to fail interesting good point yes uh, something you mentioned uh, Aaron, about micromanagement i would say other than you know obvious toxic environment and, and, and all that probably the number one complaint that I had from uh, animators towards their uh, you know their their client or supervisor or, or or whatnot is being micromanaged 
because uh, as, as you said, uh, Brent is the same thing for uh, an actor or an animator. At some point, you just unplug, say, "All right, just let me know exactly what to do, and I'm going to execute." And you kind of and you're looking at, at time uh, passing by. Uh, we also had a lot of animators that were asking us, uh, Aaron, what what does it what is needed to become a uh, a lead? And obviously, we had a different idea, but. But to you, how would you describe um, leadership in general? So someone that is generally, that's a good senior mm -hmm. animator, that is genuinely interested to go into a lead uh, uh, position. How would you describe it? Because there's many that don't have a good perception of how their day-to-day -day work is going to, to change. So what would you, how would you describe it? I see, so how their day-to-day, people don't have a perception of how their day-to-day -day work will change as a lead? As a lead, exactly. Okay. Um, well, so I have a, a definition, and I feel like I've, I've over the years, kind of partly stolen this from Simon Sinek. Uh, for anybody who, who looks at content online about leadership, him. yeah, don't tell him. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think he put it uh, in a way that I really believe in, in terms of how to define leadership, what I would define leadership as. Uh, to me, leadership is a willingness uh, to put yourself at risk for mm. others. Um, so what that means is, is, you know, when I'm an animator working on shots, um, the stress that I experience is largely within the context of the critique I get about my shot. When I'm a CEO or someone in a position of leadership, the stress I receive is usually from something that comes from the 150 mm -hmm. relationships I'm trying to maintain with people. Compounded. So those that's right. So those people have one relationship, which is to me, but I have a relationship with all of them because I am willing to put myself at risk to support the people around me. Mm -hmm. So I view leadership as being there's if you go online, you can research this. There's something called servant leadership uh, or there's something mm -hmm. called bottom up leadership mm -hmm. instead of top down. Um, again, it goes back to the Batman and Robin. I am the least significant person uh, because my job is to make sure that everybody has what they need uh, to be happy, uh, to have a proper work life balance, to have manageable stress, to be on the shows that they, they love or are enjoying. And also my job is to get them all training. That is a huge part of my job, which is upskill, upskill, upskill. Um, I believe in creating a constant environment towards training. Now, here's the problem. When you have a traditional hierarchy, you usually have in the job description of the animation lead and the animation supervisor that they are responsible for doing training, right? We all think that way. We go, oh, well, you're a lead. You got to train your team. You're a supervisor. You got to train your team. And that is important. Those people are in those positions because they are in a position to train. But if you stop there, then you'll never really train your teams to the level that they need to be trained because the problem is, is they're always going to be the bottleneck. They mm -hmm. have to do the show. They have to talk with the client. They've got to give notes. They've got to do all these things. So to me, the best form of leadership is to figure out how to get other people to step up to do training, mm -hmm. how to get mm -hmm. other people to put themselves at risk. And usually mm -hmm. those people always exist in the form of an animator on yeah. your team. Just now, if you tap. You can, yeah, if you can tap them, if you can figure out the system that you need to design, which is what we're doing here, to bring those people to the forefront to offer training. Like, it could be anything. It could be... <clears throat> 
you have an incredible way that you built constraint systems versus you convert step to spline really well, right? And we see that because you're doing the work, but now we want to hone in on it and we want to empower you to put yourself at risk. So the moment they do that, all sorts of things start to happen that people don't even realize. The number one thing that's happening when they do that is they're building relationships. Because now, like me, who has 150 individual relationships, that person now has 30 relationships with the 30 people in their team or on their project or in their department. People mm -hmm. gravitate towards them. Oh, I remember when Bill did that training. Let me go talk to Bill about this thing. So you're building relationships. Relationships is leadership because you put yourself at risk to support other people. Mm -hmm. Now, if everybody can do that, well, <laughs> now you have the utopia of animation mm -hmm. students, right? So. <laughs> So that, that's what that leadership sense. is. It's, it could be anything from an email to the team or a wiki document to a live Q&A to suddenly finding yourself in a lead position. And you're not in a lead position because you animate well. That is important. Yes, you must be able to do that. But you must also have developed prior to getting into that position a full kaleidoscope of different skill sets from communication, vulnerability, active listening, um, all sorts of things that at the ground floor, when you were an animator, your company should be empowering you to flex those muscles. Let me ask you a really big question really, really quick. In your opinion, in the industry as a whole, do you feel like we're in a deficit for good leaders? Oh my God, that's such a hard question. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, do I feel like we're in, at a deficit? In your experience, then, like just in general, because you've worked in a lot of different industries, do you feel okay, like on I've average? Okay, go. I have an answer for that. No. Uh, <laughs> what I'll tell <laughs> you is that we're not in a deficit for good leadership. I think we're in a deficit for studio leadership to understand how to best utilize people. Hmm. So in other words, in, in, in theory, we're in a deficit, but that doesn't mean it's because those people don't exist. It's because the systems that are being designed, I think, in studio, like you want to know what leadership takes? It takes a hell of a lot of effort that has nothing to do with the execution of the show. It takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of input from the upper management to enforce that philosophy around leadership that I just finished explaining. And I think that that's really hard to do when totally. the shit hits the fan and everybody needs to rally to get this project done. It's hard to remember, wait a minute, we're also taking care of people here mm -hmm. and they need to feel fulfilled by the craft. So I think if more studios do that, then more leaders will appear. Uh, so the the deficit's not there, it just happens to inadvertently be there because we're not tapping into it. Interesting. So um, I'm curious, uh, at Steamroller, are, are you guys providing leadership training to new, uh, yes. newly promoted? Because yeah. that's something that we've discussed before. And for us, it was what, <clears throat> the worst case scenario that is often the scenario that we often say, hey, you're a great animator. Do you want to make more money and be a lead? All right, mm -hmm. there you go. You're a lead. And then, you know, yeah. first of all, they were often, sometimes they were meant mm -hmm. to be lead and it's amazing. But other times they were just meant to be amazing animator and right. they, they don't have the skill set to properly, yeah. you know, uh, lead other human being. Yeah. Um, so much and, for the kaleidoscope, in other words. Yeah, exactly. And there's no training. There, There's nothing given by the, the studio to say, so, oh, okay, let, let us prepare you for this new role. Yeah, so um, that's a really, really uh, a good point. And uh, to me, at Steamroller, we're constantly training in leadership. 
Um, so I've done numerous lectures since I've been here, plus any new animator that's going into a leadership role, they have a curriculum that they go through with our heads of animation that we've been doing for a long time, uh, where they learn how to communicate and how to listen and how to read body language and how to give notes and how to focus on priorities of notes, right? Sometimes you don't want to look at blocking and the first note out of the person's mouth is let's fix the spacing on the pinky. Uh, <laughs> this is not a good note for this particular phase of, of the animation. So we work on all of that stuff. Um, but I should also mention that we do something unique, uh, I think anyways, at Steamroller, which is um, we, uh, we have leads, um, people who step into lead roles, uh, they're actually immediately compensated for uh, that effort. Um, so what that means is, is we basically vet them through the process. So if someone goes into a lead role for let's say six months they're being compensated for that extra performance in that role above and beyond their normal rate <clears throat> excuse me during that time we evaluate their performance we have you know a way that we will evaluate and give them feedback on that and um, make sure that they're growing from that role so that Usually what they want to do is because, you know, they'll do it for a period of time. And usually what they'll want to do is they'll leapfrog. They'll want to mm. go from lead to animator to lead to animator to lead to animator. I think that's the healthiest way to do it. Mm. Uh, and if you can if you can create that environment, then great, because ultimately, in the end, most animators want to always be keeping their craft up and they want to be developing their craft and they get worried. Oh, well, if I'm a lead, does that totally. just mean that I'm always giving notes and I'm never really animating? Um, you want to make promises around that, which is to say, well, we'd like you to do this lead thing for this. You don't have to wait a year for your annual evaluation where we'll give you a buck extra an hour and you won't really know why. We're going to give you this much every time that you know throughout the whole process that you're doing this so you feel validated and valued for the work that you're doing from a, a compensation standpoint but also we're going to evaluate your performance regularly mm. through that um, so that we can give you guidance and and then yeah so doing it that way would also stop that inevitable problem from happening where the leads get crushed because they're trying to do both those things at the same time trying to stay yeah. up with their craft and get their own shots done but also support their team because if you're like as to put it the way you said it if you're willing to put yourself at risk and, and put your team first and make sure you're unblocking in them all the time most people are going to be spending a lot of their time putting out fires and helping out uh, wherever possible during the day and then doing their sort of their shots at night so this is a much better approach in my mind is it just allow people sort of to you know be either all on or off but like but but sort of you know balance it a little bit back and forth like you said absolutely um yeah and i would say you know the demographic at, at our studios we have a, a lot of young talent and i think that if you bog them down with leadership for too long yeah uh they start to get you know they're they just don't end up being happy with that because they want to no. always be improving the craft um yeah. that's really really important yeah yeah um, I there was something else that came up uh, a while ago. I really wanted to, to talk a little bit more about. It was you 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 you'd mend, made a really interesting um, observation about um, shot handovers. The idea of like you know it's it's usually at, at the last resort. It's typically very destructive, especially if you're a supervisor when you have to take a shot from somebody. But even even when you try to avoid it, there are circumstances where it's going to happen. And I'm curious if you have any notes from your many years of experience from both sides of that equation on you know, how to have a healthy perspective and like, or, or how to, you know, how to orient yourself in a very healthy way to that possibility. Like how, as a supervisor, could you facilitate the turnover? What are the 
key things to do with your animator and vice versa. If you're the animator and you have someone that wants to, because it usually becomes this sort of, and from my perspective, this unspoken awkward thing that like, oh, a shot's being taken away. And I know the animator is now festering thinking, okay. am I getting yeah. fired yeah. tomorrow? Yeah. Like what's going on? Like, so talk a little bit about that. Cause I think yeah. a lot of people in, that are listening right now could like learn a lot from that. Yeah. So there, there, there are a few things around this. So number one, I think that, uh, the best animation supervisors or animation directors understand the balance between the people factor, mm -hmm. uh, the emotional side of being an artist and a collaborator, and the fact that we're doing a business, right? There's mm -hmm. a business here. There's a financial machine around this. Um, however, when I say that, I also say that throughout my whole career, I like to think anyways, hopefully nobody in the audience is going to tell me I'm wrong about this. Um, I believe that I always err on the side of fighting for the artist always mm. so what that means is if there is ever a scenario where a, a shot needs to go from an artist's plate number one there is a sit down in person conversation mm -hmm. it doesn't just happen where it disappears from their their shotgun or whatever and they don't know what the hell is going on that should never happen there should never be a mystery or a worry there so it's a sit down conversation usually the sit down conversation again because i'm trying to protect the animator as much as possible usually it won't be you're losing this shot john it'll be hey john you have five shots mm. which one do you want to lose because i can't keep all five with you mm -hmm. okay so then now what you've done is you and again this is wherever possible it may mm -hmm. not always be the case but you've now what you've done is you've given them control okay yeah. because now what it's about is about the logistics of getting the business side done which mm -hmm. they'll understand because it's not about them Right now, yeah. that's different from having a conversation with them where, in fact, their casting is wrong and there is an emotional mm. aspect to this. That's obviously a different conversation. But 99% of the time, they will walk that path with you because they get that the movie needs to be done. And so you'll give them a choice of what they want to lose. Usually, they won't want to lose anything that is editorially connected with another shot they're doing. We always want those shots on our reel. We want to see a run, right? So um, that's the first thing. The other thing is, is that I'll even work my ass off to see if I can get deadline extensions. So mm. bidding bid day increases. So I might go back to the schedule and I'll go, you know what, these shots, they're all library shots. We can start with run cycles. We can start with walk cycles. We'll customize on top of that, but we just saved a couple of days getting something started. So, you know, the bid days on those shots, we can actually shrink them a little bit. I'd like to take those bid days and add them to Bill's shot, give him a couple of extra days on that. Now, now he only has to lose this one. So it's it's it, it's a puzzle system that's designed around mm -hmm. protecting the artist. You mm. always want to protect the artist because mm. if you lose them, you that's lose it. everything, right? Now, on the emotional side of things, um, when it's a casting mistake, I usually just apologize. Um, in other mm. words, it's my fault. It's not mm. their fault because I miscast them. Now, what I'll often do there is I'll say, what else do you want to work on? What type of shots can I give you? Not obviously this type, because you've been miscast for that. Uh, what other stuff can I give you that will be really cool for you to, I, it's like a negotiation. Mm -hmm. And I want to negotiate as much as possible. Obviously, sometimes you don't always have those, those luxuries. But I guess my point is, is that any super anim director out there, you always want to approach the problem from the sensibilities of the mm -hmm. artist mm -hmm. and not from the sensibilities of the logistics of getting mm -hmm. a movie done. Uh, and then that becomes your more last resort, which is we have mm -hmm. no choice. I'm so <laughs> sorry, but this has to happen this way. 
I don't know Let's if that see. makes sense. It it does. It does. It's a it's a it's a tricky issue, right? I mean, because like like you said, uh, sometimes it could be a miscast. Sometimes it's even just a matter of the bid was done wrong. I've seen that happen a lot, where oh, it's like somehow a week was given to a shot that really should it needs like three weeks. Like for some reason, it's like they got the same. It's like it's a crowd of characters that are all holding hands, singing Kumbaya around a campfire. It's like this is not the same as a shot with like a it's just a talking head um, of one person. You know? Oh yeah, and I've I seen didn't it even. Before. I didn't even. Yeah, and I didn't even realize the bid day issue was on the table for this part of the discussion. But if we're talking <laughs> well, about here, bid day, I'd there. say, yeah, and I, I just caught it because yeah. I'm like, that's that's probably the majority uh, of issues that will happen, probably. which is studios, obviously, you know, we've all heard about how, you know, uh, uh, there's a race to the bottom, right? We've all, <laughs> we've all heard the studios undercut each other, they underbid each other because they want to get that work in and build a relationship with a client. Um, bids have dramatically decreased over the years, especially with, you know, streaming services coming in that have kind of shifted the paradigm from long sort of feature work to something a little bit more in the middle. But also you have to remember that when you're an extremely large studio, you have bidding producers and mm-hmm. bidding producers are largely trying to bring in the work. You know, they've got yep. some al- algorithmic matrix stuff that kind of looks at the script and says, ah, three characters, uh, eight days. Oh, two characters, upper body two day, you know, whatever it may be. And often they get it wrong. Okay. Mm. Uh, all the time. In fact, they get it wrong. <laughs> but that to me is not, uh, just to be clear. Um, I don't think I've ever taken really shots away because of bid day issues. Mm. I think bid day issues are the responsibility of the production to mm. know from the soup or the director where the problem is with the bid days mm. on that shot. And then you beg, borrow and steal right. to pad the days out. Yeah. On so that's a that's a negotiation you're having with production. So it doesn't even end up on, as part of the no. animator's problem, basically. It, 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 it shouldn't. I don't recall ever going to an animator and saying, hey, I've got to take this away from you because it's only two days long. Yeah, um, yeah. That doesn't usually happen. Usually it's like, hey, um, we need this done in two days, but you and I both know that's impossible. Yeah, so yeah. just go ahead and get started, and I'm going to go to bat for <laughs> you and get more time. I mean, that's yeah, usually yeah. what happens. Yeah. 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 Um, Aaron, I want to, uh, I, I want to acknowledge to our, our audience that you've mentioned, you know, uh, as a CEO and all that, but I want to acknowledge that actually today is yeah. the, the day that you've been uh, uh, promoted from CCO to CEO of Steamroller Studio. So congrats for, for Thank that. You. Thank um, you. And uh, th- there's something on the, 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 the website that I, uh, that I feel that was very relevant for this conversation and even more relevant now that you're a CEO. And, and I quote on the website, Haran's philosophy and drive are exactly what this industry needs to propel itself in the future. Uh, so, uh, uh, where do you see the industry uh, evolve? Where, what, what is this future looks like for the animation industry? Uh, you think? Let's project ourselves ten years from now. What do you think uh, will have changed in that period of time? Well, so uh, that's a wide open question because I could I could talk about technology or I could talk about you know the 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 the, the way in which we do the craft. Um, do you mind if I gear it towards what I want to talk about? Yes. Okay. Please. Um, so I guess what I would say there is, uh, you know, I always imagine the CEO of a company as being, you know, that person that sits 
up in their tower, you know, uh, and they're old um, and uh, they make life changing decisions for the staff. And they, and and they, they have a beautiful couch to, uh, to beautiful couch. anyone that is coming in. to. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they um, they make uh, massive decisions that affect the lives of the people that work in the company. But the problem is, is that the people in the company don't really ever understand the logic behind the decisions. And so really what I'm talking about is a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect in communication between, like I said before, the superheroes that are on the ground doing the shot work and the people who are running the operations of the business itself. And for me, um, that is a very different thing because I came up as an animator, um, you know, and there are only a handful of people, you know, you, David, you have a studio and, you know, Jalil, and there's not many people who have come up in the craft working on shots day to day you know i've i've done 105 hour weeks uh on films like seven day weeks 3 a.m to 7 a.m like you know so um my my point is is that what my goal is personally is i want to uh i want to run steamroller in a way where in 10 years from now I know that people are coming from all over the world to work with us, not because we have cool shows and do cool animation. That's always a, a, a goal for anybody is to work on the best, coolest stuff. I want people to come because they know that we're going to constantly train and develop their craft and we're always going to be listening. That, that's, that's the main key for me, which is I want to figure out if there's a magic system, which we are currently developing here uh, and have been for about a year, um, a magic system that can somehow, with a growing company where the hierarchy naturally grows with scale, that is just the logistics of it, somehow squashes that to a flat communication system. In other words, what I mean by this is that I want people to come because we are actively engaged in dialogue with them mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, when I say all the time, I don't mean every minute, every day. I mean, you know, obviously I'm being realistic here, but uh, the dialogue is what's really important to me because I've never been more fulfilled in my craft when, as a, you know, in leadership, where when I can directly uh, help someone fulfill a goal in their journey, whether mm -hmm. it's promoting them into a new role, whether it's giving them uh, more money in a responsible way, whether it's um, getting them onto this project or that project. It's like the dialogue for me is the most exciting part. And so I want to create a system and that is what we are doing. Uh, and I think quite successfully so far anyway, uh, mm -hmm. where that dialogue is there because my past experience in previous studios has been wonderful, but I have never felt connected to anybody in upper management ever. Yeah. I have no idea what they're doing, why they're doing it. Uh, whereas what we're trying to do here is we're trying to constantly be accountable for our relationship with our staff and the accountability requires us to be proactive. We don't want to be reactive. I want to have a system where I always know what's going on, or at least if I don't know what's going on, I'm giving everybody the opportunity to tell me what's going on. If they choose not to, they choose not to, but the opportunity is there and then I can react, you know? Well, it sounds like you're just applying the same rule that you have with animation supervision, basically to executive 
I mean, right. basically, it's the same thing. It's about you're now putting yourself at risk putting for now literally everybody there at the company. And therefore, that means it needs to be a two-way conversation street there. Otherwise, how do you do that, right? But, but, and, that, and that's you nailed it on the head there, Brent. And the, 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 the hard part is that it takes an enormous amount of effort. Oh, for um, sure. That leadership, that leadership philosophy is extremely time-consuming and it's extremely yeah. expensive. And the reason we're doing it is because of how much we believe that that is a metric that correlates mm. to profitability yeah. and success. What the secret can, sauce? It's the secret sauce. And most studios, I think, can forget about that because uh, logistically it just becomes so hard to manage it oh. all that you're more focused on the status quo rather than this leadership right. stuff, which feels like extra. For us, yeah. it, it has to be it has to be infused into everything we do. I think it's a really good observation is that feeling of it is an enormous undertaking. So people tend to, because it's chaos production, right? You tend to fall back into the sort of the, the, the typical defensive scenario of dealing with the status quo, because that's somehow it's a reactionary role rather than a proactive role. And that's hard to put out fires when, when at the same time as sort of looking for smoke, it's very hard, right? So you have to, I guess your, I guess the, the your strategy is basically find a way to do that, find a way to yeah. enable people like you to be able to, to, to be doing that at all times rather than fall into that reactive reactivity sorry reactive role rather than the proactive yeah role. and i tell the staff too i tell them you know i don't care about the fire uh the fire is always going to happen it's never yeah. ends it's all <laughs> one giant sequence of fires <laughs> it's how we pivot the it's the pivoting because <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize is that let, let, let's say david right uh, i'm going to use you david as an example david comes to me and he goes i've got this problem Okay. He's and imagine problems, he's always got problems. Imagine, yeah. um, imagine if the system is such that I can hear the problem, and by the next day, the next few days, whatever it may be, something very reasonable to both David and I, I solve his problem. And if I can't solve his problem, I can at least explain to him why I can't solve the problem, mm. and I can half solve the problem. Whatever it may be, David now knows what's happening, mm -hmm. whether it's what David wants or not. It's the fact that I did what I did that builds David's trust mm -hmm. to me, which mm -hmm. is it's the appreciation that I like. I've had people where I've had a conversation with them. And then as I'm walking away and I'm halfway down the <clears> hall because of something that I like to talk about, which is inner dialogue. This is the number one uh, <laughs> leadership trait. Number one leadership trait for any leader is inner dialogue. If you don't have inner dialogue, you can't be a good leader. But anyways, mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm diverting a bit. So I walk down the hallway and in my head, I'm going how did I sound when I said that word? What was my tone like? What was their mm. body language? Did I, did I express it correctly? If at any point I don't feel that I got something right, I do an about face and I go back to that person. Mm. I go, hey, I'm really sorry if I said it that way. I, wasn't, mm. I didn't mean it like that, right? And a lot of the time they'll go, oh, no, I didn't think anything of it. But mm -hmm. it's, it's not the point of whether I got no. it right or not. It's the it's point that care. they look at me and they go, I'm thinking about them. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about this relationship. Yeah. That's something that I want us to always be doing as a studio. And that is something that we want to train in, in mm. our people and in the way we think about things. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's very smart and it's where <clears throat> it's one of the main thing that's going to differ, differentiate uh, the studios that are going to have uh, success, I think, for, for a long term. It was not that much part of the discussion, I would say, even just 10 years ago, but especially yeah. now with the shortage of, you know, a good labor that we have because every just, you know, entertainment is exploding. 
uh, in general, plus the fact that now with uh, remote work, a lot of very good artists can, now the doors are open that they can work with uh, pretty much uh, any studio that uh, that they want. So this bond that you will create with mm -hmm. uh, either a specific client or your employer mm -hmm. or your supervisor, but this, instead of just feeling that you're an employee that is paid for this specific task, uh, is going to make a huge difference for everything. And, that, that, and, that, and that's the huge challenge though, isn't it, David? Because you know, mm -hmm. you're looking at COVID, right? And you're looking at this complete shift in the way in which we do mm -hmm. business with each other and with our clients. And uh, you would think that with the working from home situation, we know that when it started, studios started immediately seeing two things. First thing was an increase in efficiency. Right. You're not bogged down with hallway chatter, go to the coffee, go, you know, bump into someone. Hey, how you doing? It's like suddenly people started actually working more effectively because they could be alone in their home and getting their job done. That was the majority, which was production did not slow down. If anything, it did just fine in getting these projects done. On the flip side, there was the isolation, which is culture had a direct and immediate impact inside of every studio, which is people felt distanced, they felt disconnected, they didn't feel like they were able to have relationships with people. So for us, the key was how do we maintain culture in a working from home environment? Um, mm. And that's what we that's what we've been doing. We've come up with a number of strategies that we think are successful in keeping people connected to each other. Um, mm. I'm not going to tell you all of them because they're, you know, they're they're ours right now, but we'll continue <laughs> to develop them. But no, I'm just joking. Um, we found ways. <laughs> we found ways of bringing people together online that are fun and mm -hmm. informative, mm -hmm. um, and simulate the environment of being in a cafe. Yeah, social. A, the social environment that we all need and crave so much. Um, mm. And I think that that's a very important part of the leadership mentality shift that has had to happen during mm. COVID, which is, well, we talk about leadership as putting yourself at risk. Well, how do you do that when people are just alone in their rooms somewhere? That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is, is I feel like before COVID, there's some studios that were already taking that as a very serious thing. They were making sure that there were part, you know, like, you know, a uh, sank set or like make sure that they had regular moments where the team could interact without work just like right. can you can we can we have people bond and be able to celebrate the humanity of people working together and collaborating as artists and uh, i feel like those companies probably pivoted very nicely um because they yeah. they were it was already part of the culture right yeah and i'll tell you what we do i'll tell you what we do we do something at steamroller called let's chat um, and so what a let's chat is, is it happens on every project uh, across the company uh, on Monday mornings. Uh, and it's only 15 minutes long. It can't be longer than 15 minutes because then people start to perceive it as a meeting. We don't want it to be felt as like a meeting. And what the let's chat is, is it leverages Zoom's breakout room uh, function. Mm, right. So basically we pull everybody into the lobby. Uh, once we have almost everybody, because let's chats are optional, we don't force people to do it. Um, we then have the person who's organized the meeting break out everybody into groups of random two people rooms. So suddenly David and I pop into a room together. Hey man, how you doing? I don't really know you, but you know, how's your weekend? <laughs> and you know, we form a conversation uh, over the course of a five minute period and you can see the countdown on, on the five minutes. Um, and what it allows me to do is get to know David because he's on my show and you know, I never talk with him because we're both working from home. Then after the five minutes is over, we all get spat out into the lobby and then right away the coordinator or whoever it is does the exact same thing but with groups of three because the group of 
three dynamic is fundamentally different than the group of two. Here you start to see totally. people who might might slink away a little bit more, maybe just listen, be more of a fly on the wall. Different types of personalities happen here. Um, everybody gets spat out after five minutes. Bye, everybody. Have a great day. Meeting's over. Um, hmm. And the idea is, is you're just trying to simulate that environment of bumping into people at work and someone mm -hmm. decides you're making coffee in the in the totally. cafeteria or whatever. Yeah. And it's, we found that it has been extremely successful in getting people to know each other on their teams. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Aaron, at this point in the conversation, we typically try to go to chat and see if they got sure. anything to pick your brain about. There was a lot um, about Shia LaBeouf in here. I, I didn't no, no. understand. <laughs> that was my fault. It was, it was that shot, the shot you were describing of the mirror. I just wanted yeah. to know if anybody in chat knew who was in that cab where the, where the mirror shot. Oh, it's Shia LaBeouf in the cab. Yes. He yes. was yeah, very right. young, very young Shia LaBeouf That's was right. in that movie. Okay. Right. So actually we have uh, a couple here. One is from actually our very own Scott. I'm going to bring it up. Um, it is. You mentioned questioning if you were a bad animator. Um, that was earlier in the conversation when you were like, it was, you know, taking a little long, like it was like two and a half years something like that for that one shot. You're starting to wonder whether maybe you're just really shitty at it. You know, <laughs> what are your experiences with this? What are your personal experiences with imposter syndrome and how do you overcome it? Uh, yeah, um, I think probably the majority of people at some point or another have imposter syndrome. Everybody. I feel like my whole career has been imposter syndrome. I keep, <laughs> I keep having new opportunities and yeah. I'm like, you know, how did this happen? Is that because I was really bad at the last yeah. opportunity? Yeah, yeah. and now um, when you begin a CEO, you get to question it all over again. You're like, well, exactly. what am I doing as a CEO? Like, what the hell that happened? Amazing. You know, um, I remember uh, something that I think it was Bobby Beck uh, mm. from, from Pixar, Animation Mentor. Animation Mentor. Yeah. Uh, he, I think, and God, I hope I got this right. Um, so hopefully I won't get uh, chastised if I got it wrong. But at a, uh, uh, at a presentation that he gave at Ubisoft, um in you know mid 2000s uh he said something that stuck with me my whole career uh and i fundamentally disagree with it uh, i've oh. discovered i've decided Juicy. that i disagree with it yeah uh, it took me i guess what i would say is that it fascinated me at first and then i, I took a lot of time to think about it and it kept coming back into my mind mm -hmm. and i i do not agree with it now you know i've come to that conclusion and it was that i think he said something along the lines like at pixar you're only as good as your last dailies Mm. And I couldn't disagree with that more. I think that that's wrong. Um, and the reason why I say that is because um, I don't think that your value as an animator is determined by the moment of praise or the moment of critique. Uh, in other words, when I'm like, I, I, I wrote an article, which I'm going to rewrite uh, now because I read it recently and I hate the way I wrote it, but it's called the emotional animator. And uh, this notion that in a collaborative creative industry, we're constantly being bombarded with comments about how good we are or how bad we are. It happens constantly. Um, and so, you know, I remember, let's say on Tintin, uh, probably that shot with the, the dog for 200 278 versions uh when it got approved the director spielberg said something like you know this is now my new favorite shot in the movie put it in the movie hmm. and so now i'm walking around and i'm completely <laughs> validated right i'm i'm high-fiving yeah. i'm like you know it's like the music is playing and i'm like i feel like i have value and the next day literally the next day I get a huge reblocking note on my shot. The note says something like, this is wrong. This is not what we're doing, whatever it may be. And what do I do to myself now? Now mm. I go all the way to the low. I'm bad. Totally. Uh, I'm not good. Okay, well, that can't be real. 
planet. Yeah. I mean, can you be the spend, same? Yeah. yeah. Can you be both those things at the same time? Yeah. So we spend our entire careers on this emotional wave mm -hmm. of highs and lows and highs and lows. And it's very exhausting for some people. Like me, I consider myself to be a sensitive, emotional person. I'm highly empathetic. And so when I had to go through that throughout my career, it was exhausting for me. It would really bother me. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Well, how can I be mm. both? How can I be one one day and the other the other day? Mm. How can I be only as good as my last dailies, right? It's the same concept. So what I just decided on was that I'm not. I decided that my value is based on the fact that I always have the intention to do my best work. Mm. The, 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 the fires, the technical pitfalls, the ambiguity of direction, whether they said the right note to me in exactly the way they meant it, all of that stuff has nothing to do with me. What I have control over is my passion for the craft, my desire to train, to learn, to be the best that I can be. That's my value. When mm. you get lazy, when you don't care as much, when you watch YouTube for half the day while laying some loose keys, okay, this is where you can be you know, objectively determined as not good at your craft because your active effort in it is only half as much as what it probably should be. Right. So my point is is that imposter syndrome is a meaningless question uh the question you have to ask yourself is not uh, you know are you really good or are you really bad the question I have, you have to ask yourself is do you really care mm. um, because if you really care you will just get better it's just a, a logical kind of curve right which is i don't believe someone just plateaus forever i think they probably just stop being that interested for whatever mm. reason then you plateau mm. interesting does that make sense? It does. It does. I like it. We should get Bobby in here. We could have like a debate, like a Thunderdome. No, match. no, no. I love Bobby. I, I don't know Bobby, but I love Bobby. I don't want to have any debates. Listen. Well, I, 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 I'm, I, a follow-up question would be, would you think, it, do you think, because his perspective might be from his experience, maybe certain absolutely. teams do value that a bit more than others. Like you're, because you're, what you're saying kind of challenges my perspective on, on, on how some, some companies value their own people. Like I think that. Yeah. And also just to say this was, this was, this this was 15, 16 years ago. Yeah, so, that's so true. What was said then might be very different. Yeah, perceived very now. true. The, the other thing that I would also argue, which is um, to me, what I value more out of an animator is the overcoming of the note not whether mm. they got it right or wrong. It's like, again, like I've got animators um, that I've worked with where they have trouble showing stuff early mm. and often mm. in dailies because they're worried that it's not perfect enough. Yeah, yeah, and totally. I explain, well, the moment you made a decision to make it perfect, you already fucked up the relationship <laughs> with the person you're working with. Am I allowed yeah. to swear? I'm not allowed yeah, to yeah, swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. So you've, you've dishonored the relationship. I don't want it to be perfect because mm. you've cut me out. Mm. I, I don't want to be cut out. It's a collaborative craft. Mm. Allow me to work on this with you. That's part yeah. of the process. Yeah, yeah. So to me, when you come back and show the note hit, maybe the next time or maybe even two times after, that has more value to me mm. than whether you got it right the first time. Obviously, if you got it right the first time, we're all happy. Great. But, you know. Hmm. David, you were going to say something, I think. Uh, yes, but uh, I see question coming in and oh, I okay. see the time. So Sounds I'm, good. I'm, yes, I'll let you bring in the other. I have another question here. It was a follow-up from the, uh, the, the very, um, the, the grenade question I sent, I threw it on your lap a little while ago, which is like, you know, if you're a supervisor and you need to have a conversation with, with an animator when you have to take away their shot and you had said, well, like one of the first go-to things you do is, 
is ask them like, look, you got five shots, which one, you know, cause we got, you know, we just have to unblock things and rebalance the load a little bit. Uh, and of course this hot number came in and, and contest to that. What if you, what if that animator only has one, I guess yeah. it just brings you then to that other, one of those other conversations, right? That's right. Then it's a yeah. casting issue. Yeah. Uh, if, they, yeah. if they've only got one and it's got to go, it's a casting issue. Yeah. Usually if it's a casting issue, it's never their fault. That's the key thing to remember. Yeah. If your supervisor is having that conversation with you, they better damn well be apologizing. They got to own up to it. Yeah. Yeah, because they got it wrong. And then what they need to do is they need to ask you, what else can we challenge you with? Because yeah, this, is yeah, yeah. this isn't it. We're going to work on this over time. We'll come back to this another time and help totally. you figure things out. What do you want to do? Um, again, it's always about the relationship, which is, you know, when, when your parent says, you can't have that and you have no control, you don't feel valued in the relationship. Mm. But if you can create dialogue, yeah. that is the key to building trust, even though it might not be what the animator wants to hear. Totally. That's some golden advice right there. Okay, I got another one in here, which is, okay, so this is just gonna go right to the core of everything here. What is your advice for beginners, uh, for beginner animators to grow fast? So I guess if you had like your top three things that they should focus on when you're just starting out, what would those things be with all, you know, the perspective you have now looking back on those? So would I, be, would I be assuming that this is a beginner animator working in a studio or just at their home on their let's, own? Let's assume let's say, not. Go ahead, David. I was just going to say that's a junior animator that is starting oh, okay. and wants to become a let's sure. say, good senior, but rapidly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, this is saying student. Mm. Okay. Then, uh, then just, go, go that route it. then. Yeah. Yeah. Popped up at the end. Uh, yeah, okay. So Taha animation. That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, student. Okay. Um, so I assume then if you're a student, well, obviously you have to devour, right? <laughs> I mean, you have to that's devour information. Uh, you have to devour information. You have to, um, I would probably say the biggest hindrance that most students have is their, their workflow is flawed. Mm. Um, and that's the worst sort of start you can have is if your workflow isn't a clear path. You might not be good at it, but you at least need to know what the right workflow is. Mm -hmm. So I think workflow is something that you really have to focus on because if you can get it right, even though you may be slow and sloppy, um, it will get refined over time and become something that you can be really, really good at. Uh, there are a lot of student animators that come out of school that have really, really poor workflow. Um, and so, you know, you always get that thing where, you know, if you open their Maya scene, you'll just go, you know, you'll like, oh my God. Um, and then of course the problem with that is that they can't adapt to notes. That's the key issue, which is you have to build your animation in a way that you can adapt to the notes. Um, what else? I would probably say uh, uh, anatomical and reference analysis is really, really important. Oh yeah. Um, I would say you don't need to be a good artist, but you need to be able to, you know, uh, overlay annotations on top of reference to understand line of action, mm -hmm. to understand the strength in a pose. Um, so having an understanding of muscle, bones, anatomy, those sorts of things is really important. A lot of animators just want to, like, you know, look at, 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 even if it was feature animation where it's a, a human acted performance, there's still a lot of anatomical things that are happening there that are very important for you to understand. So I think diving into anatomy is very important. You know, in VFX, we spend half of our time looking at the muscle structure of leopards and cheetahs mm -hmm. and understanding how they digest food and gestate and, you know, all of these things, like anything you can do to develop your understanding of how something lives lives and breathes on the planet is important towards feeding your animation uh, uh, mindset. Um, 
Uh, I would also say talking a lot about animation in terms of how people do things. Reach out to people on in your network. Uh, if you can make friends with people on LinkedIn at a conference, at a you know, and you can tap people for how they tackle challenges. Anything along the the, uh, the the lines of training is really really important. That's why I asked about studio versus student because for us we're you know we've done so much training in the, in the last year that i know our talent is growing exponentially they're all growing because it's just there but when you're alone at home or you're working in an online class you kind of have to really go out and do it as opposed to having a studio do it for you or provide it for you um so it takes a lot of initiative i mean you really have to be hungry and devour information mm. also i would say practice uh you know just all the time just keep challenging yourself i would say if you want to go into visual effects animation you really need to understand quadrupeds um that is very important if it's critical to the to being able to get work in that environment um i don't know am i missing anything guys no, Help that, me out. that's that's good i really like the whole devour part because that's something i always just say often say is develop a healthy appetite for information because you're going to have to you know i find a lot of animators they just kind of they just kind of half half look at references or, or like they don't, they don't really do their homework on a shot. They just sort of start moving things around. And I feel like they're kind of missing the forest for the trees in a way. Like, I feel like it's like part of that, part of animating me is the experience of devouring and consuming and, and like understanding the depths of what you're animating as opposed to just starting to move stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I couldn't agree more, which is if you're ever in a position where you're moving stuff and you're looking at your, you're thinking to yourself, why, why am yeah, I making why? this pose? Yeah. You're not in a good place. 100%. Um, yeah. You should. And I think that that's something that like, I think you should always be annotating on reference. Uh, I think it's very, very important because it will be done for you by supervisors and animation directors. We do it less in visual effects than we do in feature anim. Uh, in visual effects, by the time I started doing it actively uh, as an anim soup, my drawing skills were already so terrible that mm. it just looked like it just looked like giant penises all over the place. But um, I got better with it over time. But my point, my point is, is that um, to break down the the mental approach to animation, you should be able to look at something and on any given frame, a key pose, you should mm -hmm. be able to sketch on top of that and understand what is the spine doing? Mm -hmm. What is the, what is the hip line versus the shoulder yeah. line, the contrapasse or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that that's the all what important. and the why, right? The purpose of those, because everything is doing something for a reason. I think people forget that it's not there. That's the right. spine's not just doing a thing just because it feels like doing a thing. It's usually because there's a purpose for it. There's some sort of motivation behind it. Um, I have, um, I have one last question. It wasn't an official question, but I thought it was kind of a nice one to wrap up the stream with, which is if we have anybody in the, in the room here who might want to potentially apply to a company like Steamroller, um, I assume that you probably have some sort of online submission form for, for, yep. for people to, okay, well, so yeah, I guess. Let me, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little plug. Um, yeah, plug it up. Yeah, so, uh, so Steamroller is located in Florida. Um, we're just north of Orlando. Uh, the company is currently about 200 uh, people. Um, I'd say probably about 40% of that 200 is international. Mm. Um, so we have a lot of people uh, who are located in and around the studio, whether they're working from home or coming in every day. And then, of course, we've got people all over the world. We've got people in Canada and Europe and Australia, like every, all over the place. So uh, for someone who said, can Canadians apply? Of course, you can apply and you can work from home uh, with us. Obviously, in that particular case, you are a contractor mm -hmm. and not an employee. Uh, in order to be an employee, 
you must live within the state of Florida. Um, and uh, we have all sorts of uh, online application forms that you can fill out. Uh, I should warn you, um, we test. Uh, so we uh, do not bring people in very lightly. Uh, mm. Our vetting process is quite rigorous um, from blocking animation. If you pass that, we send you a uh, uh, feedback, video feedback from one of our animation Oh, that's cool that you do that. Yep. And then uh, you have to then do the second part of the test. And then if you pass that, we then do an interview and 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 try and get you into the studio if things are looking good. So, um, yeah, we're hiring constantly uh, any level of animator. Uh, we also have a large uh, rigging staff. We have modelers. We've got concept uh, layout. So, um we sort of juggle uh, half of the studio, well, more than half of the studio work that we do is service work. Uh, so we have clients like Weta Digital and, uh, you know, Framestore and uh, uh, DNEG and um, various others. We have a lot of gaming work that we do as well with, you know, Epic and, and, and other companies. Uh, and then, of course, we have our IP. Um, so we are mm. actively uh, working on now we are in just about to come out of pre-production and go into production on a 28 minute pilot episode for Spice Frontier. Uh, we made a short about uh, seven minutes short about two and a half years ago. And we mm -hmm. believe so strongly uh, in the product that we are developing uh, what we hope will be a TV series. Very um, cool. and so that's our own content. And of course, we've just finished our first video game, uh, Curse of the Deadwood, which will hopefully come out soon. So lots of exciting things here. If you want to diversity of project from VFX animation, feature animation, high-end cinematics, in-game animation, and uh, yeah, we have it all, so. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, Aaron, um, I think that probably brings us, we're already three minutes over. I just want to take a second to uh, to sincerely thank you for being you, here. Um, you're obviously a very busy person, so taking the time out of your day to just hang out with the community is um, very, very, oh, this, very well appreciated. This was great, man. This was this was just the perfect time that I needed just to sit with you guys and relax. I, <laughs> I, I loved it. And also, I want to say happy Passover. To yeah. I got, a, I got a happy Passover. I was so going to bring Passover. that up. Yeah, yeah happy Passover to anyone observing that particularly um, um, awesome holiday. I I think uh, honestly we got to get you back in here at some point because uh, there's obviously some big things that are happening in your world and Steamroller continues to be on our radar because obviously with the kind of stockpiling of talent you guys have over there, it is getting a little bit a little bit interesting. So I'm, I'm the only thing I'm worried about is you might actually collapse some into some sort of supernova at some point. Uh, I mean, it may happen. We're gonna see. Um, we'll, we'll we'll keep a close eye on I it. Thought, but, I thought I thought. I don't do supernovas collapse because uh, I, I, it's I imagine the whole thing we're they just implode gonna, and they kind of oh, do this. No, yeah. no, 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 I don't see it that way. I see us as just constantly expanding and exploding mm. into a beautiful, okay. happiness. beautiful cosmos of happiness. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, I'm just saying, like, only so much talent can exist in one singular place. I think you're oh, challenging the, the universal. Okay. Well, I guess time will tell, Aaron. We'll have to have you back. <laughs> That's right. We'll You'll have, have me back. We'll exactly. Have to find a way of measuring this. I don't know what the metric is, but we'll figure something out. I told you already, happiness. That's right. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Aaron, thank you. Have a wonderful awesome. rest of your day. David, thank have a wonderful guys. rest of your day. And yep. chat, have a wonderful, wonderful Thanks, rest Brian. of your day. Thanks, Aaron. So much for great. having me, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Cheers, you. Everybody. Bye bye. Uh, another conversation, um, another afternoon with an amazing person. Um, as you can see, Aaron is a um, very well spoken and very well experienced um, individual in the animation industry. Uh, we didn't get to touch too much on exactly how we got into it because there's some some fun backstories there as well. It sounded like it kind of just happened when he saw some um, 
so I, I can't remember the story he was selling right telling right before the uh right before the stream uh somebody i think he knew he was visiting a production or something and he saw like anime like some, some people were moving like dinosaurs around and he's like what how is that even possible and next thing you know he was getting sucked into this wonderful world we all find ourselves in um so yeah so thanks for being here everybody it was uh, it was a great stream and um and I think you, if you were so inclined, you should definitely apply um, to uh, to to Steamroller because, uh, as I said, I wasn't joking around. When I saw the talent that's been rolling in there, it's getting a little bit, uh, it's getting interesting, maybe a little bit silly. So I think that they're going to be doing some pretty awesome stuff moving down the road. They've already done amazing stuff, but they will continue to do even more amazing things until next time. Then everyone stay animated as usual. And uh, I don't know, Scott, was there something I was supposed to say? I felt like there was something I was supposed to say at the end of the stream. Scott, help me. Scott, help me is like, God help me. But no, Scott, the almighty one has said that there's nothing specific. We have a, yes. So there is a stream tomorrow. I believe that uh, it was uh, slated as a, as a review night. So I will see whoever wants to show up tomorrow evening for a free evening of reviews. If you're interested in having your work reviewed, um, for free and we do this um every once in a while and uh just that just happens that every once in a while happens to be tomorrow night coincidentally um you there's a form you can fill out scott i don't know if you can link that form or maybe you did that earlier but we have a form and you could submit your stuff if there's no guarantee that it's going to be looked at but um but uh, we kind of do a bit of a, a dice roll to see who who gets chosen and uh we we dig into it. We take a look at three, usually in an evening, and um, I try to do my best to give you a taste of what a feedback session would be like if you wanted to order a review from Agora. As you may or may not know, Agora has a panel of experts that you can book to have your work reviewed, and um, and we kind of give these uh, these samples out every once in a while just to get everybody uh, get, get everybody acquainted with what a, what a really good uh, animation review should feel like so that you can grow from that experience. Uh, next week, we have Sean Beishu. We, we've been having a lot of um, performers actually on lately. He's sort of yet another in the line of amazing talent that um, that we've interacted with over the years. He's a local um, stunt performer slash perf like actor. He does both. Um, and uh, he's, he's actually, I feel like he's been in almost every video game <laughs> production here in, in Montreal. That'll be fun. He's got crazy stories to tell. He's a, a very interesting guy. Very, very very generous and um and great to have on set so it'll be i'm sure he'll be just as amazing to have on stream okay i think that's it for real have a really good day talk to you soon and um see you tomorrow night hopefully cheers thanks for listening to this episode we hope you got a lot out of it agora community is a free resource for artists in the animation visual effects and gaming industries providing daily educational material free rigs and assets we also have a range of experts you can purchase affordable animation reviews from to help you level up your skills. You can check it all out at agora.community. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming conversations and free animation quick tips. So, until next time, stay tuned and stay animated.